Would you turn to Exodus chapter 19 as we continue to work through our Exodus sermon series? We'll be reading all of Exodus 19. If you don't have a Bible, uh, words will be on the screen behind me. And also in your app, there's a sermon listening guide that you can pull up and you can follow along there and the scriptures printed there as well. Exodus chapter 19. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, that's three months from the Red Sea to now at Mount Sinai. On that day, they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments, and be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them, Ted Kaczynski was known as the Unabomber. He was a mathematics professor and then became disillusioned with life and moved into the mountains of Montana. And for the next almost 20 years, 
he sent bombs in the mail to people he didn't like and to people he didn't agree with. And so over the course of almost two decades, he killed several people and injured many more. And it took the FBI a long time, but they finally were able to figure it out, find him, apprehend him, send him to prison. And while he was in prison, his mother, Wanda Kaczynski, was interviewed by the Chicago Tribune. And as she was interviewed, she shared how she would send monthly letters to her son in prison. And she shared an excerpt from one of the letters that she sent to her son in prison. It said this, I want you to know, Ted, that when a child is born, the parents give them the gift of unconditional love for a lifetime. This is true of you. No matter what happens, my love for you will be there for a lifetime. Love, mother. Now, what makes these words even more astounding is that when Ted Kaczynski walked into the courtroom for trial, he refused to look at his mother. And as he was giving some testimony, he spoke of her as a horrible person. And yet her response to that was love. It's an amazing picture of human love. And there'd be a lot of examples of human love, that kind of sacrificial love. But none of that compares to what's revealed about God in the scriptures and his love for sinners. We're in Exodus 19. This is three months since God's people have been rescued out of Egypt. They crossed the Red Sea. And it's been three months, as we have seen, of grumbling, complaining. We don't have enough food. We don't have water. We want to go back to Egypt. Rebelling against God. Three months of it, and now we arrive here where God is going to not shun them because of their sin, but come down to them. And this is the culmination of what God promised Moses in Exodus 3 when he called him at the burning bush. He said, Moses, I will be with you and the people you rescue. I will love you. And the sign that I'm with you and that I love you will be that you will worship at this mountain, speaking of Mount Sinai. And so here we are, God assuring his people that he's with them, that he loves them. But it raises the question for us, how can you be assured that God loves sinners? How can you be assured that after you have messed up for the nth time in the same way and come to him, that he still loves you? You say, well, I, I got the concept that he loves me, but he certainly has to be deeply disappointed with me. Well, maybe if he's not deeply disappointed with me, he, he's got this kind of mild resentment of how I've spurned his love. We're no different than Israel. How can you be assured that God loves sinners? We see three reasons from Exodus 19. The first is the heart of God. What is God's heart towards you? If you could peel back the inner recesses of his being, what would his heart be towards you? What does he feel towards you? Look at verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. 
God is reminding his people what he did to rescue them. How he humiliated the Egyptian gods through the 10 plagues. How he drowned Pharaoh and his armies, the enemy in the Red Sea. And then we see his heart being expressed here with the beautiful imagery of an eagle. He says, how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. The image of an eagle is powerful. The, the eagle is a bird of prey. It attacks its enemies as God attacked Israel's enemies, Egypt. But an eagle is also a bird of rescue. It's a bird of rescue. And Moses actually picks this up in Deuteronomy 32 as he speaks of how God took care of the Israelites through the wilderness. Listen to what he says. He, God, encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions. This is the picture of a mother eagle. Baby eagles stay in the nest for a long time, upwards of 100 days, but when it finally gets to that point where it's time for the baby eagle to be nudged out of the nest, the mother will nudge the eagle out. And if that eagle falls and begins to struggle and can't fly, the mother will swoop down and catch that eagle on its wings and bring it back up to safety and do it again. It's this wonderful picture of protective care and tender nurture. That's the heart of God towards you. That's God's heart towards you. And that is founded upon a deeper truth that drives that kind of protective care and that tender nurture. Look at verse five. You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. Among all the peoples of the earth, you're my treasured possession. That means personal treasure. It actually speaks of the prized possession of a king. First Chronicles 29, we read the same words used to describe King David's gift, precious gift that he gives towards the building of the temple. God says, you're my treasured possession. And when you combine that with verse six, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests. He's saying, you're my precious people who have access to my presence, priestly access to my presence. The question becomes, why are they treasured? Why did God treasure them so much? I mean, we've just been through three months of grumbling and complaining and rebelling against him and saying, no thanks, we wanna go back to Egypt. Why does he treasure them? Well, Deuteronomy 6 makes it clear, it was nothing in them. It was nothing in them. God treasures you, loves you, not because of anything in you. There's nothing in you that coaxes God's love out. There's nothing in you that draws God's love out. His love for you comes 100% from his heart. Probably the closest picture that we have of this is a parent and child. And if you're a parent of a child, you remember when your child was born. And you remember looking at your child and it was instant love. You didn't have to learn how to love your child. They didn't have to stop crying. Uh, they didn't have to look a certain way. 
They didn't have to have a certain personality that you saw came out early. You, you just love them. And so it is with God's love for you. It is born 100% out of his heart. He treasures you. That's God's heart towards you. One of my favorite uh, scenes in The Lion King is when uh, Simba and Nala wander off to the elephant graveyard and they get themselves in trouble and they're surrounded by hyenas. And right about when these hyenas are about to attack and kill Simba and Nala, who are defenseless, Simba's a little cub, can't defend himself. Right about that time, you hear this thunderous roar. And it's Mufasa, Simba's dad, who has come to rescue him. And he steps in with one swat of his paw. The hyenas are gone. They're running away, tail tucked between their legs, scared. And then, and then you see Simba almost cowering in awe of the power of his father. And also cowering a bit because he disobeyed by going. They return to the pride land. And then there's the scene with Mufasa and his son Simba. And Mufasa says, Simba, I almost lost you today. And then moments later, they're rolling around on the grass, wrestling and laughing, and Simba's enjoying the relationship with his father. It's such a picture of the protective instinct of God towards his children and the tender love and care that that's God's heart towards you. And it comes from him, and there's nothing in you that draws it out. Now you say, wait a minute. You conveniently skipped over the beginning of verse five. Verse five, now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession. You say, that sounds pretty conditional to me. That as long as I obey, I'm God's treasured possession. No, remember where we're at in the story. God has already rescued his people out of Egypt. He's already saved them. They already belong to him. All right, the if of verse five relates not to their, the status of their relationship with God, but to their enjoyment of a relationship that are, has already been established by God. Right, the status of your relationship to God comes by his work and his work alone. Enjoyment of your relationship with God comes through obedience. It's an issue of enjoyment. Obedience is not a, a part of our, a, our part of a two-sided bargain with God. Obedience is a grateful response to God's unilateral work and what he's done to save you. Or said another way, your obedience does not change God's heart towards you. Your obedience doesn't change God's love for you. But your obedience does affect your enjoyment of God's heart towards you. So how can you be assured that God loves sinners? First, the heart of God expressed beautifully in verses four to six. But second, the holiness of God. The holiness of God reassures you of God's love for you. 
Now, on the surface, this doesn't seem to be the case because there seems to be a pretty massive contradiction in this chapter. Verse five, God says, you're my treasured possession. I love you. You're my greatest treasure. And then he tells Moses, Moses, I'm gonna come down onto Mount Sinai and I want you to prepare the people. I want you to consecrate them, prepare them for the third day when I come down on Mount Sinai. And then God says this in verse 12. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. You're my treasured possession. I love you. Now stay away. And don't touch the mountain or you're going to die. You say, well, wait a minute. Are, are they his treasured possession or not? At the core of this command in verse 12, to put the boundary around the mountain, don't come onto the mountain, don't touch it or you'll die, is the holiness of God. The holiness of God is not just a passive characteristic of God. It's an active force. The holiness of God embraces all that conforms to it. And it destroys all that doesn't conform to it. The holiness of God embraces all that conforms to it and destroys what doesn't, which means the holiness of God eradicates sin, destroys sin. And when you understand this about the holiness of God, it becomes your friend, not your enemy. See, God knew that his people were sinful. We walked through three months of it. He knew they were sinful. And he knew that his holiness would destroy them. And so his command in verse 12 is saturated with love. Because they were his treasured possession, he put limits around the mountain. He, he was committed to destroying their sin without destroying them. It was an act of love. So the question becomes, how do you conform to God's holiness so you can be embraced by God's holiness? Well, in preparation for God descending on Mount Sinai, he gives the people instructions. Look at verse 10. Go to the people, consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. And then verse 15, and he said to the people, be ready for the third day, do not go near a woman. So in preparation for God coming down onto the mountain to meet with them, they had to wash their clothes and they had to abstain from sex. And the washing of clothes was symbolic or was to be symbolic of their desire for purity, for holiness. And the abstaining was from something good that God had created, but for a time was to, so they could focus on hearing God's word. It was a form of, of fasting so they could focus on God. But that's how they were to prepare themselves for God's coming. And then in verse 21, after God descends on Mount Sinai with all the thunder and the lightning and the smoke, after he descends, he calls Moses up and he says, Moses, I want you to go back down and warn the people not to touch the mountain and not to come on it lest they die. And Moses' response in verse 23 is interesting. That's more than interesting. It, there's a hint, and that's probably even light, but th there's a hint of frustration and impatience on Moses' part. 
He basically says in verse 23, God, you've already warned the people. You already told me to warn them. I've already warned them. Why do I need to go back down the mountain and warn them again? Isn't one time enough? Why does God prescribe or, or call Moses to go warn them a second time? He'd already done it. And the reason is they needed the repeated warning that the holiness of God is such that no human self preparation can satisfy its demands. See, they may have thought, hey, we washed our clothes. We got clean clothes on. We've abstained from sexual relations. We've done everything you asked. Hey, we're in good shape now. These boundary markers around the mountain, that's a thing of the past. We can go up the mountain now. And Moses as mediator, well, he was good, but hey, we've cleaned ourselves up. We're holy. We can have direct conversation with God now. We don't need the boundary markers. We don't need a mediator. God was reminding them that their holiness wasn't his holiness. And you and I need the same reminder. Your holiness is not God's holiness. Why? Because no human self-preparation can satisfy the demands of God's holiness. Even your best efforts at obedience, even that week where you feel like you nailed it, you had every time with the Lord, you prayed, you, you didn't yell at your kids, you, you served your spouse, you, uh, you were selfless. I mean, the week that you nailed it, your best efforts at obedience are tainted with sin. Thought, motive, action. Isaiah 64, 6 says it this way. We have all become like one who is unclean in all our righteous deeds. All our best efforts at obedience are like a polluted garment. Here's the real danger. If you begin to think that your acts of holiness can satisfy God's demands. Then you begin to attach his love to your obedience. And that works as long as you're obeying. That works as long as you're meeting maybe your own expectations of obedience. But when your obedience goes out the door, you're in a real predicament. Because if you've attached God's love to your obedience and your obedience goes wayward, then what happens to God's love? No human self-preparation can ever satisfy the demands of God's holiness, which begs the question, then what can? Then what can? How can you be assured that God loves sinners? We've looked at the heart of God. We've looked at the holiness of God. But third, the mediator of God. At the center of this story is Moses as mediator. Moses is mediating the people's relationship to God. When they want to speak to God, they speak through Moses. When God wants to speak to them, he speaks through Moses. Right? Moses is mediating this relationship. He is preparing them to meet with God. And this is seen most directly in verse 14. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people 
and consecrated the people. Now, what does that mean that he consecrated the people? Well, in Exodus 13, before they crossed the Red Sea, God tells Moses, Moses, I want you to consecrate to me the firstborn. And what Moses does to consecrate, that word consecrate means to set apart as holy. What Moses does to consecrate the firstborn is to offer a sacrifice, an animal sacrifice, so that the sins of the firstborn were transferred to this substitute. See, God's people could never prepare themselves in such a way to, to satisfy the demands of God's holiness. They couldn't make themselves pure. God had to do it, and God was doing it through Moses the mediator in consecrating here. And most likely what that means is that he offered a sacrifice, an animal sacrifice, where their sins were taken from them and symbolically placed on the animal as a substitute. You and I need a mediator except that we need a better mediator than Moses. Moses was imperfect. His mediation was never perfect. It always was pointing forward to a better mediator to come. And this mediator is described beautifully in Hebrews chapter 12 as it connects what we just read here in Exodus 19. Hebrews 12, starting in verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and tempest. That's describing Exodus 19, the Mount Sinai experience when God came down. Author saying, you haven't come to Mount Sinai. Rather, you've come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels and festal gathering. This is a joyful gathering. And to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, that's God's people. And to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Many years after God came down on Mount Sinai, he would come down again. But this time, not with thunder, not with lightning, but in a baby, in a manger. The baby Jesus, the mediator of God. How do we know that Jesus was the mediator, that Jesus is the mediator, the ultimate mediator between God and his people? Because when Jesus touched people, they didn't die. Nor did Jesus keep people at a safe distance. The holiness of God was in human hands. And when the holiness of God in human hands touched people, they were cleansed and they were purified and they were embraced. Jesus as mediator came to heal. The holiness of God embraces all that conforms to it. Jesus Christ is the only human being who has ever and will ever satisfy the demands of God's holiness. He's the only human being who will ever satisfy the demands of God's holiness. And when you turn to him through repentance and faith, he takes your sin and he gives you his holiness. He cleanses you so that you are embraced by the holiness of God, not destroyed by it, 
Your sin is removed. What that means is that you are never so holy. You're never so holy that you can walk away from your mediator, Jesus Christ. Nor are you ever so unholy that Jesus Christ, the mediator, walks away from you. Or put another way, you're never so holy that you don't need him. And you're never so unholy that he doesn't want you. Now, how do you respond to this? How do sinners respond to this? Well, in Hebrews 12, verse 25, right after it describes the better mediator, the ultimate mediator, Jesus Christ, verse 25 says this. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. How do you refuse Jesus Christ? Well, if you're a self-righteous type of sinner, meaning that you've gotten to the point where you feel like you've cleaned up your life, cleaned up your act enough, you've become a disciplined Christian that knows the way of holiness, you may believe, I don't really need a mediator anymore. I don't really need Jesus anymore. On the other extreme, if you're a defeated sinner, full of shame and guilt. You may wonder if Jesus is tired of you coming to him for the same thing over and over. There's two ways that you can refuse Jesus. But whether you're a self-righteous sinner or you're a defeated sinner, both are suffocating because both are breathing on polluted air. Dane Ortland, in his book, Gentle and Lowly, asked this question. Would a father with a suffocating child want his child to draw on the oxygen tank in a measured, reasonable way? Of course not father with a suffocating child wants that child to breathe on that oxygen tank regular, often, to take deep breaths, to take as much as he needs. Let me say it this way. Jesus Christ never tires of you coming to him. Never. Here's why. The scriptures say that Christ that we are the body of Christ, that if you've turned to Jesus in repentance and faith, you've trusted him, that you're his body. Jesus is the head, we are the body parts. Jesus experiences great comfort and great joy when you draw on his atoning work. When you draw on his finished work at the cross because his own body, you and I, is getting healed. Let's pray. Father, you love sinners like us. And the astounding truth is you love sinners not after they've cleaned up their act, 
nor when they've figured it out or gotten to some level of holiness. You love sinners because that's your heart. Our value comes from your love that is set upon us. And yet, Father, we fall into either extreme of becoming a self-righteous sinner that doesn't functionally need a mediator anymore or become a defeated sinner where we're full of shame and guilt wondering when you'll tire of us turning to you again and again. And yet, Father, you never tire. You love when your children turn to you. For those that are here, full of shame and guilt, knowing very well they haven't been obedient at all. Oh, Holy Spirit, would you draw them to turn to you, Jesus, and would they be convinced of the joy that you experience, Jesus, when they draw on your atoning work? And Father, for those of us that maybe are on the self-righteous end, would you help us to see the false motives and the, the darkness and, and even our best efforts? And may we be reminded that this Advent season, the holiness of God, came in human hands and the baby, Jesus Christ in the manger, our mediator. Would you remind us that whatever Jesus touches is healed? Father, as we close now in worship, would we sing with joyful hearts coming to Mount Zion where the festal gathering is, where there is great joy at one sinner who repents, and that's not just once, but over and over. That's what brings joy to heaven. Would we respond in faith and repentance in singing to you? We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.